This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We're going to talk about Hamilton's downtown. It's been the focus of attention by city council and by police for the longest time. Uh, the, the methodologies uh, that were used, of course, I think are well documented right now. We need to clean up the downtown. And uh, we thought we were making some pretty good progress on this. But uh, a task force dedicated to safety and cleanliness in the core is now asking police to step up and do more to try to combat some of the graffiti and some of the uh, panhandling that's going on down there. This all falls under the guise of uh, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr. He's the uh, counselor for the, the downtown area. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about some of the problems. Uh, counselor, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Thank let's, you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on, because we sometimes uh, those that don't spend a lot of time in the core, Jay, may be getting mixed messages here. We know how things were pretty bad a few years ago. Uh, the Action Force was instituted by uh, former Chief of Police uh, Glenda Kerr. Uh, we heard there were some pretty good results as a result of that. But you're hearing some some pr- troubling anecdotes anyway from some of the people who work there and live there. Yeah, and as chair of the Downtown Cleanliness and Security Task Force, I mean, right there in the title, those are the issues that we tackle or try to tackle on a regular basis. We meet uh, pretty much every couple of months, Bill. And at our last meeting, we had a, a piece of correspondence that we directed toward the chief, and we were hoping that it would be uh, correspondence that was debated or at least talked about at their next Hamilton Police Services meeting, which it was yesterday, and we're appreciative to uh, Chair, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Board Member Madeline Levy for bringing it forward. And that correspondence uh, spoke specifically to some of the issues that uh, directly came from International Village, but as a whole, we handle uh, a good portion of the downtown and uh, this topic regularly as it relates to the graffiti issues and some aggressive panhandling issues. And so uh, the chief talked about it. We were glad, and we're glad that it's out there. And uh, certainly I've been getting some feedback since and expecting some more feedback uh, related to the issue that whether perception or reality, what we're hearing is, and particularly in International Village where this correspondence was endorsed at safety and security to move to HBS, um, uh, that that it's an, it's been increasing. We know, and you and I have talked about graffiti issues before, and you've talked to other counselors. I know about graffiti issues before. That's worse than it's been in a long time. There's no doubt about it. It's generated in part by some social media campaigns where these vandals are showing off their so-called art, but realities are that it's mischief, criminal mischief. And uh, then the aggressive panhandling piece is, is, is a topic of conversation that's been consistent, but uh, now we formalize in looking for a response from HPS on how we can do a better job. All right, let's talk about those two issues, uh, and sure. because they, they, I know that it's the same area, but they're two separate issues here. And, and as you, you've just mentioned, uh, you have dealt with these in the past, and there's supposed to be a protocol in place. Let's talk about the graffiti first. Uh, and I know you've had some pushback, and all the counselors have over the last couple of years, about this policy that if it happens on somebody's property, that it's the property owner's responsibility to clean it up, uh, which some people take umbrage with. Is that is that one of the issues that you're dealing with here? Uh, yeah, and you know, and, and, and over the course and through the Safety and Security Task Force and through my office, we've uh, tried to assist where we can. Counsel, a couple of years back, you'll recall, um, uh, we had Ducer, uh spray painting on levels above the first level of privately owned buildings in our core and throughout our city, and I was managed, I was successful in getting a, a reserve fund to help in a 50-50 cost share on the private cleanup. That private cleanup uh, policy hasn't changed. What we've done in our uh, first phase of a, a graffiti management uh, policy is supplied uh, 140000 to address the issue in the form of uh, uh, two new staffers, their students, uh, a car, 
and uh, basically taking an inventory and asking uh, those folks who own these uh, properties to, to you know, ta- tackle their issues and, and follow the policy and remove the graffiti. And you are right, Bill. It is, it is often uh, uh, an issue uh, that has not gone over uh, with all, all smiles and whistles because, uh, you know, a lot of times the private property owner says, well, I didn't do this. This isn't my issue. This is a greater issue. And the city should be more supportive, and it costs us a lot of money sometimes to remove graffiti. But the reality is, in our city, in most cities, it's the uh, it's it's on the private property owner to remove uh, the the unsightly uh, 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 paintings of uh, vandals. And, and and as soon as you get that order, there's a certain period. I think it's three weeks to, to a month that uh, the order you have to comply. And if you don't comply, then we have the right as a municipality, like other municipalities, come in do the work, contract it out, and then, of course, you're, you're billed accordingly through the tax roll. And it's not popular. I totally understand. The other aspect of that is, you know, we have to set a standard ourselves. We get graffiti on public property, and we need to address and clean that uh, public property up as soon as possible, too. So, in other words, walk the talk. But it, it's tough, and here and there, we've tried in the downtown to assist with the 50-50 funding that was approved. There was certainly a lot of take-up. Uh, for some of those buildings where the second and third floor even were were vandalized, and and I think that was appreciated, but it's still it's still a tough issue, and it's one that we are are going to continue to try to address. It's 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 a good first step in identifying where the problems are, but you know that's in the thousands across the city. It's not exclusive. To well, yeah, this is not exclusively a downtown issue. I get that, but one of the stories I keep hearing from store owners, and I'm sure you do as well. Is that look at you know this was all based on the premise that well if you clean it up then they won't come back and do it again well that's not true there are repeat offenders on the same properties time and time again and some of these store owners have actually contacted me and said look at how much am I supposed to pay to do this I mean this keeps coming back and coming back why don't you stop the guy in the first place well and you know we had that question actually to our I was at a court town community meeting just last night and uh, Jen McFadden who's an amazing crime. Uh, a uh, local crime uh, 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 officer who comes a lot to these neighborhood meetings was asked point blankly, like, you you know, we see these tags. They often have that same sentiment or, or that same uh, name. Uh, Deucer is a really good example, but there are others. You know who they are. Uh, you enforce accordingly. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to prevent this reoccurring issue by these same individuals. What are we doing and what can we do more to try to get these people, whether it's help uh, or whether it's uh, greater enforcement. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, Jen rightly points out, it's what the courts determine the penalties should be. And in some cases, some of the people in the community meeting last night felt that it wasn't enough. And, and, and you know, they, while they don't know all the details on how this enforcement uh, is working or these penalties, uh, to what extent these penalties are are, are uh, being uh, derived by, by the court system, all they know is that they see it again, time and time again, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's repeat offenders, and it's, it's troubling to homeowners and business owners in Corktown and throughout our core. So, so, so there's a, a whole series of, of, you know, bureaucratic red tape, for lack of a better word, that, uh, you know, most people who are victims of these vandals uh, don't want to hear about. They just want a, a better strategy and a better way to address it. And over the next couple of years, I think we're going to get better at tackling uh, the graffiti issue. Uh, you know, the, the BIAs in the summertime hire part-time people to clean up private properties. There are little ways in which that can add up to bigger things and, and better results in time. But, uh, 
it, it is getting to the point where it's 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 a blight. It's it's getting worse. And I do believe, and I think you've talked about it before, Bill. This social media piece and an international village first pointed it out with these taggers that were tagging above the first story using a uh, fire extinguisher, filling it with paint, standing back about thirty feet, and then flapping this crap on the wall. And and the result, uh, and the, the whole point was to film themselves doing it, their disguise, putting it on social media, and it's all about like YouTubers and everybody else getting as many hits as possible. So that's disturbing because you know now it becomes a, a game. And it's one where business owners and residents are paying the price. All right, let's talk about the other issue. And I, I, again, I'm not so sure we're going to get any resolutions to this, but I understand the frustration people are feeling. The other one that came up is panhandling. Now, again, this is a very contentious issue uh, because I know that you've dealt with this many, many times before. Uh, there was a protocol put in place by police, but they have been getting a lot of criticism, as you know, because uh, they're handing out tickets to people to people who are living on the street, people that may have uh, some concerns, mental health concerns in some cases. Uh, and, and as a result, of course, these things get tossed out because there's no way these people are ever going to pay them. It's not really a deterrent. Uh, what we're doing here apparently isn't working. No, I mean, you, you, you can, you know, make the arrest or offer the fine and, and the problem isn't solved. It just goes away for a few days, and then it starts up again. And, and we know, and, and, and the advocates who feel uh, that those uh, with these unfortunate social circumstances that are repeat offenders as it relates to uh, panhandling or aggressive panhandling is where we were focused on the Safety and Security Task Force. And by the way, that's when you know they're coming to you in the car in the middle lane and walking uh, uh, throughout traffic and, or maybe sometimes getting verbally aggressive. We know, Bill, that this is, uh, in a lot of cases, a, a mental health issue, a drug addiction issue, other health issues are, are at play here. We have, and, and I'm glad you mentioned off the top, Chief DeCare was hired uh, as, after a first interview where he took that, I remember, I'll never forget the story he told you on your show just before, or just shortly after he was hired, and one of the first questions he answers about how would you address crime in the downtown, he took a drive around before his interview and said, quite clearly, we don't have a presence in the core. We need, he basically uh, described the action team before the action team ever was established. Yeah. Yeah. Team. Yeah. And that was part of the hiring process. And I think that was a big reason why he was brought in as a chief from the outside to begin with. And, and the presence do, does help. It did, it did work. It did, it, 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 uh, we see. And we've talked about this through our BIAs and our safety and security task force, a decline. And, and just based on presence, I'm not going to get into tickets and what tickets were valid and what tickets weren't valid and action court cases and all of that. Well, because there were a lot of contentious issues. I mean, as Absolutely. you know, sometimes street musicians were being ticketed. And, uh, and, and as you say, people that had no ability to pay these things. Uh, right. and, and I guess there's another element to this, too, is, is how aggressive are these people? Or is it just the very fact that they're there that bothers some people? Well, some, well, both. Uh, some can get very aggressive. I personally, obviously, have been, you know, uh, aggressively panhandled on a number of occasions in the past. And I respectfully decline giving any change. And, you know, Joanne Priel said years ago that, you know, when you do that, you're, you're not helping the, the, the cause. You're not helping the case uh, because, you know, if they're, if they're doing all right on a daily basis, they're not going to leave. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I just thought, you know, there's a, there's that human part of you that sees that there's some despair there and you want to give, but if you give, uh, you're only encouraging uh, the issue, whether it's aggressive pain handling or not. 
Now, the reality is, uh, on the aggressive side, now you're getting into perceived and real concerns with, you know, some aggressive behavior. Usually it's uh, the tone, the language you don't give, and then the expletive comes your way, or the maneuvering through traffic while you're waiting at a light and, you know, maybe trying to concentrate on, on other things, and it becomes an unsafe situation, and it, and it puts some fear in some people. And, and that's something that, I, you know, police were addressing, and, you know, and, and they continue to address. And it, and, and, but the, the reality is you're just going through uh, a, a cycle that maybe for two or three days the problem goes away, but it, 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 a fine or a couple of days or a weekend in jail doesn't solve. What works and what you've talked about in the past on, on 900CHML are programs like the Social Navigator program. So where we take exclusively one officer working with a paramedic and trying to help these folks because this this stuff is the direct result of, like I said, there's drug issues, there's mental health issues, there's health issues, and they need to be taken through the system from start to finish. Short-term addressing of issues never works. It just repeats itself over and over again. It's a vicious cycle. But when you have a police officer dedicated and an EMS officer dedicated one at a time, one issue at a time, so one individual at a time. What we've found over the years, it's, it's very successful. We've got like an 85% success rate of, get, of ridding ourselves of the issues um, for good. In some cases, they're off their medications. In other cases, they're not being cared for at their care facilities to the level that everyone expects. In other cases, you know, I know one in Kingston, the parents have been looking for their child for, for years and had no idea where the child was. And they, they reconnected them with family, and they went back home and, and got the help they needed. But it's a start-to-finish process, and obviously it's time-consuming, and it's costly to have one dedicated police officer in a city where the cop-to-pop ratio is already bigger than most cities, and it's hard to address all of the problems when your police force isn't as robust as other cities. And then on the other side of it is it's, on the time-consuming piece, you can only do so much if you only have one social navigator. That's why I said just the other day, and I've said it in the past in, in committee, It'd be great if we could have two or, or three social navigators because then we would double or triple the success of this program and really, truly tackle the issues and help people that are aggressively panhandling or doing other nefarious things because of uh, issues they have with drug addiction or mental health. We don't have the budget for it. I hear those comments all the time. We don't have the police force for it. Uh, but, you know, I think we're at the, at the level, and from this communication that went to police services and these conversations that we're having right now, Bill, clearly it's time to reassess where are we successful and maybe we need to refocus our funding uh, uh, to make it even more successful. Well, and therein lies the problem. I know we're just about out of time here, but uh, the action team, of course, has had great success, the track record, uh, notwithstanding some of the aberrations that uh, that we've talked about in the news over the last year or so. We get that uh, about tickets, et cetera. But these guys are all over the city. It's not just in the downtown core. I mean, I think what your your residents and what their store owners are looking for here is a consistent presence and maybe even some of the same officers who can identify and say, oh, there's uh, so-and-so. Yeah, he's always on that corner. He's he's okay. Uh, oh, there's somebody who's aggressive. Maybe we have to do something about that. It's hard to make value judgments when you don't really know the players. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I think this whole conversation, this latest round of uh, of, of this discussion from a safety and security task force point of view comes from a BIA conversation where we've lost the, the beat officer. Uh, and so just take, there's obviously other forms, there's mounted police, there's action police. And presence is a big thing. It, it's the perception of feeling more secure as a business owner or a resident when you see police. And it has been spread out. I mean, the chief points out that we haven't depleted our resources. 
but they've been altered, right? So action, for example, used to be about 100% in wards two and three, and a little bit of one, to my recollection, back when DeCare put those 10 officers on shifts, on their bikes, with the yellow jackets. That presence alone gave people uh, a feeling of safety and that problems were being addressed. Take away all the enforcement and any issues that may have happened over the years with that enforcement. It's the presence. It's the same thing with a beat officer or a mounted officer. And when those those visits are limited or there's no routine beat officer walking down King Street East or down James North, uh, businesses know. And, of course, they'll contact me and we have those discussions and we bring them to the appropriate committee, in this case, Safety and Security Task Force. And I think that's what we were getting at with that with that piece of correspondence that ended up in the Hamilton Police Services Board's hands and was part of the discussion at that board meeting and again today. We've noticed there's been a change in the way we're dispersing officers that generally make people feel safer in our core. And so the chief addressed that, and I appreciate that, that, that he made the comments he made. We could see from his comments that while we used to have 100% action officers, it's 15% of that 100% has gone elsewhere, I think. And, that's, and therein lies part of the problem. we got to break it off at this point. And but, that gets uh, noticed. Talking yeah, about that it, talking about it's the first step, I guess. Uh, Councillor, thanks so much for the time. I know we'll do more about this in the uh, coming weeks. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Bro. You too. That's uh, Councillor Jason Farr. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, if you haven't realized or noticed that uh, Hydro is... Uh, probably the number one issue in the upcoming provincial election. You haven't been paying much attention. <laughs> it's there uh, by everybody, by all the political parties, obviously because of what's gone on here. It's hydro rates, but it's also compensation. And 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 maybe what we're going to talk about right now is probably, I would imagine, because of a comment that uh, Doug Ford, PC leader Doug Ford, made a couple of days ago where he said he was going to fire the CEO for uh, Hydro One uh, and maybe get rid of the board of directors, too, if that's what it took. Well, here's what happened as a result. I mean, if you're the focus like this, and people, taxpayers, ratepayers in this province, are upset with the board, you'd maybe just want to duck and hide. But instead, these guys brazenly did just the opposite. The board of directors of Hydro One have now approved changes to the company's executive compensation policy that will make it costlier for the government to intervene in their business. In other words, what they've done is gave themselves a bigger severance package. I'm serious. In spite of the fact that that's what everybody was jumping up and down about, they said, let's give ourselves more. If these guys are going to fire us, we're going to come out of there with a lot of money in our pockets. I'm, I couldn't believe the gall. Joining us to talk about this is Parker Glides, the vice president of Wind Concerns Ontario. Parker, so much uh, going on here. I appreciate you joining us on the program today. You've got to be frustrated. I know I am. Yeah, I think a lot of people in Ontario are frustrated with those announcements. And, but, and, and uh, it's not just rates. I mean, you and I have talked in the past about hydro rates and about, about how we generate power, and there are some serious concerns about that. And, and ultimately, these people, these board of directors, are the ones that I think have to take, uh, you know, be held accountable for this. But the compensation packages here are just outlandish. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. They're, they're way out of line with any other... Uh, company across the country and even in the U.S. where a lot of larger ones, uh, you know, have uh, smaller payments for CEOs that are running much bigger companies. How did it get so out of hand? I really don't know. I mean, I presume the, uh, you know, the, uh, CEO uh, Schmidt must have a lot of influence over the board or something, but uh, I it seems like, you know, they're th throwing mud at us, uh, you, despite what they've been hearing from the media. 
Well, you know, the, the comparables here, I think, are worthy of note here. In some of the other provinces, uh, CEOs of their hydro uh, corporations are, are making about six to $700,000, which is still a pretty significant paycheck. This guy's making 10 times that much. And I just, there's, I can't understand. And I have, I've yet to hear anybody try to justify this, probably because there is no justification for it. Well, yeah. And I mean, he, he, the earnings last year were actually down by almost 9% for uh, Hydro One. So the earnings dropped. And what do they do? They give them a $1.2 billion, $1.7 million pay raise. It seems ridiculous. No, that's not normally what happens. You know, when the earnings fall, the board of directors usually doesn't give any bonus or any additional compensation to the CEO. But in this case, they gave him a big raise. But it doesn't seem to get any better. It doesn't really matter who's in the corner office at Queen's Park. No, it just, this is a problem that continues to fester. And notwithstanding the fact that the public is, is consistently saying, do something about it. Yes, I don't know what it is about politicians. They like to get in there and sort of mix it up with the electricity sector because, you know, it goes way back. I mean, it goes back to, you know, uh, the 50s. But every premier, I think, has had, you know, some uh, way to get in there and, and mess things up a little bit. But I think the current government has done the best job. <laughs> Faint praise, uh, but therein lies the problem. And and now I understand that because of the circumstances that uh, there's some question here as to whether or not uh, and the next government, whatever that government would be after June 7th, uh, is going to have any power to do anything about this. So I understand there's a protocol that has to be placed, but uh, the, the way it was explained to us is that uh, the, the premier, whether it's going to be Kathleen Wynne or Andrew Horvath or Doug Ford, can't just walk in the boardroom and fire these guys. Uh, well, he can't, he can't fire the CEO anyway. No, but they can raise a you know a shareholder's resolution. Yeah. Uh, and they're in control of 47% of the shares currently uh, until Hydro One acquires Avista and then converts, you know, a convertible debenture that they've issued already. Then they'll drop to around 41%. But right now it's 47%. So they don't need many more uh, shareholders, if you will, to get on side. And normally a lot of shareholders don't bother to vote their shares. The, you know, that own them in the public sector. Uh, but uh, I, I think a lot of the union members of Hydro at Hydro One own shares because that was kind of the compensation arrangement made when they went public. With yeah. that. Instead of giving you a big raise, we'll give you some, some shares in the company. So my guess is the union probably would side with the government. So my view is that, you know, if there's a shareholder's... Um, um, you know, if the shareholders, you know, Hydra Province of Ontario raises the the idea that they would like a vote on this, that they wouldn't have any problem achieving a majority. And, and that's going to happen. I mean, I think no matter who wins this election, I mean, that's got to be one of the main jobs and one of the first priorities is to address the, the inequity that's going on. I, I have always maintained uh, for years on this show, Parker, that I have a philosophical problem with any elected representatives that vote themselves a salary increase. I just don't think it's right. I think it's unethical to do that. Uh, but especially for this board uh, to do the exact same thing, especially in light of the fact that they know that whoever's going to win this election is going to come after them, and they just figured, you know what, we're going to pat our wallets before it happens. Yeah, no, it seems ridiculous, as I said, because the earnings fell. They've got this huge offer out to purchase a vista there in the west coast of the United States, that operates in four different states and are paying a ridiculous amount for it. And, and um, you know, like 
28%, I believe, over, over its uh, book value. It's going to take them almost 40 years to recover at the same rate of, of uh, income that Avista's been achieving. So, I mean, you know, you look at all the things that have gone on with Hydro One in the past three or four years, and you say, who's running this show anyway? Well, that's one of the th- conversations I think we need to have. I mean, we've heard what Doug Ford says he wants to do, and it's going to cost an awful lot of money to do it, and he might still do it anyway. We don't know. But what I'm trying to find out from some of these candidates, especially the party leaders, is your game plan to try to fix this. Everybody who ever wants to get elected on Ontario for the last 30 years or so, Parker, says, I'm going to fix the hydro when I get elected. Right. They don't. No, they don't. I mean, the other thing that I've got a problem with right now is that uh, many of the bureaucrats in that energy sector, if you will, uh, you know, top down, have suddenly sort of, you know, they're, they're, you know, buying into a lot of the bump that the politicians are saying. And and they're also, you know, losing their, you know, as far as I'm concerned, losing their ability to be able to present transparent information to us that want to look at why is there, you know, electricity bill going up? And, you know, what does the 25% we're kicking down the road really mean? You know, the the, the break we got on the bills. Well, yeah, because you have questions, I have questions, I think everybody who votes in this province has questions, because we pick up a little bits of information anecdotally. Uh, you know, why do the rates go up the, the, to the extent that they did? Uh, why are these guys making the kind of money? Why are we producing more power than we need in this province? Uh, th- that's one of the things that I know that's, that's frosting a lot of people's cornflakes these days. Why are we spending lots of money, millions upon millions of dollars, building new wind turbine farms, and, and we don't really need it? Yeah, yet, yet it's just, costing us anyway, and we're paying for it. They just, you know, given contract uh, awards out to uh, another four wind turbine uh, developments, and and we're running a huge surplus. I mean, we're curtailing wind almost every day, and you know, uh, there's been studies done showing that wind, when it does actually generate power, presents its power at only uh, at 65 percent of the time we don't need it. So, you know, this is stuff that, you know, someone's got to get right at some point in time. You know, let's do a cost-benefit study, as the uh, Auditor General suggested some time ago. Why was there never a cost-benefit study on this renewable energy acquisition? Well, you know as well as I do, there's an awful lot of bureaucrats and certainly an lot of elected officials that don't ever want to let the facts get in the way of their opinions. Yeah. So so they, that's maybe one of the reasons why they didn't do the study. But at some point, somebody's got to grab this thing by the reins and say, okay, listen, you know what, we we need to rethink what we're doing here. That's yeah, no, that's I mean, really what it comes down to. You know, we're, you know we've got the highest rates in, in the whole country. We have um, industry that is constantly under pressure because of their uh, expensive uh, electricity bills, and uh, you know we've got no way to achieve that. I mean, they've moved the you know the the cost for some of the industri- large industrial companies over to the residential, and and then we complained about our power rates going up, energy poverty, and what did they do? They turned around and put twenty five percent you know of that into the future. We're going to have to pay for that in another four years, starting in another four years or five years. I mean, you're you're so right that we need to, someone needs to have a look at this and do it properly. Well, 
and and tell us what the plan is and yeah. and and you know what be frank and honest with us and because you and I both know and I think most people that have, have even a cursory knowledge of what's going on with hydro and the impact it's having understand that it's it's going to take a lot of money and time to fix this there are no quick solutions to this I no. mean you know if Doug Ford wins the election he goes in and fires the board of directors that's not going to do anything for my hydro rates and no. uh, and you know that's that's that may be something that needs to be done regardless but what's the plan to do something about this into the future why can't you bring us back to reality like many other jurisdictions. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, I mean, this, this push to get us off coal and to, uh, you know, put renewables wherever we can uh, has just created a disaster. And of course, you know, as we keep doing it, it gets worse and worse and worse. So it's going to be harder and harder to sort of reverse the trend that we've got. Well, that's part of the problem, though. I mean, the people that we're asking to change it are the ones that gave us the system in the first place. Yes, right. Yep. And it's not just the politicians. You're right. It's the bureaucrats and it's the board of directors. Uh, and, and, you know, something's got to happen. I mean, how can you – that's the old idea about, you know, keep doing the same thing and expecting it to have a different result all the time. It doesn't work that way. No, it sure doesn't, yeah. We've proven it. So where do we go from here? I mean, you know, I, what's going to happen here is, I mean, you know, Mayo Schmidt's public enemy number one in the province right now. I mean, this is a guy who's making over $6 million now, and we know that his contract says that uh, that he gets about a $10.5 million payout if they, they, they can him, and that's probably going to happen by somebody who, in the premier's office at some point. So we're going to have to, we're just going to have to absorb that. We're going to have to suck it up and pay that. Uh, I know that, you know, Ford's saying, well, we'll fight that. Contracts are contracts. Yeah. Uh, no, and, I, and we heard this during the leadership debate as well. I mean, there were some people that were saying, let's tear those wind turbines out of there. Those are contracts too. This is going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money to get us out of from where we are. And then we have to start building up again and do it properly. I mean, the interesting thing, though, is I just read a report um, that uh, I think a lawyer uh, issued on the Council for Clean and Reliable Electricity, that's a, a non, not-for-profit group. And um, what he's saying is that if if the government wanted to, they could change uh, the, the rates that are being paid to Canadian-owned um, renewable energy companies. They couldn't change the ones for the foreign ones because that would mean the international companies would come after us under you know, various trade agreements like NAFTA. So we can do some cancellation and some changing in them, and what we're we'll paying the domestic people, but that's only twenty-five percent of you know of what's out there. But why aren't we doing that sort of analysis? I mean, why does it take nonprofit groups uh, and and grassroots organizations? I mean, such as yours, to bring these th- these for these problems and these possible solutions to the problems to the fore? I, why aren't we hearing that from government? I, I don't know. I mean, I've been after the ministers of energy for some time now. I've written lots of letters, and I, you know, never get anything back. So, I mean, you know, I make suggestions, as does, as do a lot of other people that that are also critics. And you know, the same thing with them. They don't get any response back. It's like you know, they've got this game plan, and they're just moving forward with it, and will not listen to any alternatives. But there are people and there are jurisdictions that do it better than we do. Why aren't we learning from them? I, I have no idea. I mean, we seem to admire California and uh, and Quebec. But Quebec gets, you know, 99% of its power comes from hydro. Uh, we can't, you know, change that in Ontario. We're stuck with our geography. 
and, you know, we have to live with what we got. Yeah, but Governor Brown was just in Ontario a couple of days ago. I know. I, yes, I, you know did anybody say, hey, Jerry, how do you guys do it down there, by the way? We well, they kind of like to pick your brain. Too. They've got very high prices. Well, their costs are, uh, yeah, well, everything in California is just over, uh, over the moon right now. Everything is costly there. But they're innovative. I mean, it's costly, but it's innovative. And they, they seem to be at least having their heads screwed on properly, and I'm not so sure we do here in Ontario. Oh, you're, you're totally right. I mean, you know, we, we're going in, uh, in the you know direct direction that uh, the politicians decide we should go in without consult, consulting people that know something about the whole system. How do we get this dialogue going? I mean, I know that all the leaders uh, that want our votes in June 7th have talked about this, and they've given us that promise again that they're going to fix hydro, but I don't hear details. Uh, no. Matter of fact, we're not hearing much detail from anybody. I, well, I shouldn't say that totally, because I know Andrea Horvath has, has a plan, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical about the fact that she can buy back those hydro shares. Well, uh, that's going to be pricey, although the but, hydro shares have hardly moved. They've hardly budged since the initial um, uh, offer was put out there, or since they were... Were, went um, public, but uh, I mean, my scary part of her her platform was that she said she'd reduce rates by thirty percent. I don't know if she means on top of what we've already got, and where's she going to find that money? You know, where's it coming from? Well, she says it's going to be you know the, from the sale. But like, I, here's what I don't get about this: if I'm one of those people that bought shares during those sales. Why should I give it back to the government? Why, if I'm if I've got it, uh, unless she's going to pay a premium for it, and if she is, who's where's that money going to come yeah, from? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean the attractive thing about Hydro One now is that they are obligated to pay out seventy-five to eighty percent of their net income annually by way of dividends. Uh, so you know they're not keeping much back in order to build rebuild the infrastructure. That's the thing that I find concerning. Uh, disconcerting. Well, why should they? I mean, there's no there's no compelling evidence why they need to, because the government just turns around and adds a surcharge to our bill every time they That's need to true. do maintenance. <laughs> but I mean, we're you know, we're on this you know this uh, path that uh, we're not going to see an end to it. You know, it's like we're just recycling everything and and getting in uh, deeper and deeper. Frustrating stuff. Parker, uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Well, thank you very much. Okay, we'll see how this rolls out in the next couple of weeks during the campaign. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Already, thank you. Parker Glad, he's the uh, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario, uh, which was an an agency, an organization that was born of, obviously, about some of the concerns about wind power and and the cost of it and, and some of the contracts that the government of that day uh, were engaged in. And we already know that that cost us a ton of money. And, and, but therein lies the problem. I know that you know when you're frustrated as a voter and you're frustrated as a rate payer and you look at your hydro bill, you want to jump on board with anybody that says, I'll fix it for you. I'm going to fire those guys. But that's not going to fix the problem. It may get rid of some guys that are making way too much money, and he may replace them with a bunch of folks, but they're going to have to pay them something. I don't think it's going to be $6 bucks a year, but you still have to have a board. But what are you going to do to fix the system? Because it's the system that's costing you and me more money. It's not just the board of directors. As a matter of fact, I think we mentioned on the program last week, of those salaries, especially Mayo Schmidt, who is the chairman of the board, the CEO for Hydro, that's $6.5 million. 80% of it's paid by the shareholders for the Hydro. It's not paid by the taxpayers. We only pay 20% of it. Now, that's still a pretty big chunk of change. I get that. But that's not the problem. The problem is the system. The problem is the way we generate it and how much it costs us. And other jurisdictions don't have the same costs. 
That's a simple question. Why are we doing it this way in Ontario when others are doing it more efficiently in other parts of the world? And why isn't anybody who's running for office right now going to sit down and say, here's my plan? Because I'm not hearing that. I'm hearing little short cliches. I'll fire those guys. I'll do this. I'll lower rates. How can you lower rates? Do you remember when Ernie Eves did that when he was running for re-election back in the 90s? He froze rates, and everybody said, what a great idea. Well, you still have to pay for the cost when you have the electricity. And if it costs 10 bucks and you're only charging me 7 that 3 bucks has got to go somewhere. And you know where it went? Onto the hydro debt that you and I had to pay for eventually. So that's not the solution either. I want the people that want to run this province to tell us what they're going to do to fix the problem. And I'm not hearing anything yet. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Speaking of a lot of money, I want to talk about the price of gasoline. Uh, we are heading in towards the warmer weather, and uh, like it or not, that usually means that we're in for some increased prices in, at the pumps. You've probably already seen it starting, but uh, this may just be the beginning of what could be a pretty steady increase over the next little while. Joining us to talk about this is Dan McTague, uh, of course, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic. He's now, of course, with GasBuddy.com, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm just uh, sorry about the delay. I'm just trying to keep uh, keep pace with StatsCan coming out and saying, guess what? They've suddenly discovered, as governments only do well too late, that the price of fuel has gone up dramatically. <laughs> well, anybody who's been to the pump in the last couple of days would do that. But we, we should actually qualify this, Dan, by saying this time of year we should expect a price increase anyway. And, uh, uh, and there's, this, there's something about the quality of the gasoline this time of year? Yeah, Bill, we've changed over from winter to summer gasoline. And it's not so much the quality, but in fact what they have to do to uh, reduce gasoline's uh, volatility when it's subject to higher temperatures. So for the past 30 years, uh, the Canadian government has requested that all gas stations dispense what's known as... Uh, summer blended fuel and it basically means uh, as temperatures rise that gasoline won't evaporate uh, in your tank it won't create problems for your car it won't certainly wind up in the environment during the winter the reverse is true you want something that ignites very quickly and so the components in winter gasoline um, usually butane is uh, is the is the key element in terms of the mix um, so from september 15th until uh, april 15th gasoline can be winter blend very cheap to make uh, versus uh, summer blend, which begins uh, by law on uh, all gas stations have to have it in their pumps as of April 15th. So just a few days ago, everybody has to be dispensing that more expensive to make uh, summer blend of gasoline, and that stays right up until the mid part of September. How do they do that? Can they do that on the run? In other words, at the refinery, do they have to shut things down and flick some switches? How does that happen? Sometimes they have to, but the basic changeover is called alkylates versus butane. Um, it's much more complicated than that. But refineries do have to make uh, adjustments, uh, do require some of the units be closed down. Uh, and some of them, of course, will, uh, uh, will, take, uh, will do this twice annually. So we are seeing that, by the way, right now with uh, at least two refineries here in Ontario, one in Quebec that have, uh, are going through uh, springtime maintenance. Others went a little earlier. So the market right now in terms of supply is pretty tight. And it's also one of the reasons I think prices are probably a four or five cents a liter higher than they ought to be. That will start to come down a little bit. Uh, between now and say the May 2-4 weekend. But after that, I would look to uh, uh, prices moving right back up. And the simple reason is we're into a uh, continental uh, global market for gasoline pricing, whether we like it or not. Americans are going through gasoline like never before. And, and, that's, just, and that's that's an interesting point you're raising, Dan, because yeah. I think a lot of people may think, well, look, we've been taking stuff out of the oil sands for years now. We've got our own uh, our own gasoline industry here, but we still buy our gas from the States, don't we? 
Well, we buy uh, our oil from Canada here in Ontario. We yeah. don't buy much gasoline here in Ontario from the U.S. Uh, that's something that Vancouver does and apparently really likes doing, uh, and they also like blocking pipelines. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, <laughs> but most of the country tends to be net exporters of gasoline. Ontario is about even. Quebec is a net exporter slightly. Uh, the Maritimes, absolutely through the roof. I mean, 95% of whatever they produce, the, the two refineries there are exported to the United States versus the domestic consumption, which isn't great in the Maritimes. But what we need to keep in mind here is uh, when we sell oil, oil has been rising. It's about 19, $18, dollars a barrel more than it was this time last year. Normally, the Canadian dollar responds very positively. In other words, it keeps pace with the U.S. greenback. But this time it's not. And uh, it really means that because uh, it's important to know, Bill, we price all of our gasoline in U.S. dollars. That's mm. the world benchmark. We lose about 14 cents a liter in purchasing power because we're not getting world prices for oil. And we're not getting world prices for oil because we have, uh, you know, people out there protesting, stopping, blocking pipelines to get our number one commodity to the world market, which, by the way, it's heavy oil and the world, especially the United States and Asia, want our oil. But uh, we have a committed group of people in this country uh, forcing you and I to pay an extra 14 cents a liter. I want to get into the philosophical discussion, and, and I know we could probably spend three hours talking about pipelines as opposed to other methodologies of, of trying to get this stuff to market. Uh, but, I, but I think, you know, we, we just talked about the, you know, the wrapping up of the inquiry and the charges in the lac Megantique, and we saw it can't happen if you use rail an awful lot. That's not very dependable. Uh, the pipelines, whether we like them or not, are going to have to be a reality because we're not going to get rid of fossil fuels anytime soon. No, it's part of our life. I mean, people tend to think of fossil fuels as, you know, sort of a uh, uh, dirty oil or something like that. And I, I think it's fundamentally disingenuous. And it's brainwashing 101. Uh, the device in which I'm talking to you from is made with oil. The paints on the wall that I have are made with oil. The pharmaceutical industry, the petrochemical industry, the high value added. In other words, the things that have guaranteed us the higher standard of living. By that, I mean the ability to live longer, uh, max out our lives, uh, live you know more comfortable lives came as a result of our ability to responsibly use uh, fossil fuels from natural gas all the way to oil. Uh, you know, when I look at pipelines, I say, you know, it's a safe way of bringing products across the country. You're quite right. Lac Megantic being one example. But think of it another way. As we put more crude on rail because of uh, environmental zealots stopping uh, pipelines from getting to markets, we now have to put these things on rail, which is in turn blocking other t- forms of, uh, of merchandise, think of agriculture and the, our, our, our farmers not being able to get their grain product uh, to market. These are, you know, these are examples of uh, you know, the high-handedness of some of these folks coming from outside, well-funded by uh, you know, uh, green organizations, left-wing organizations that seem to think that Canada's a soft target. And by the way, here in Ontario, make no mistake, 1,600 companies depend on, this, on the uh, viability of our oil sands as well as about $4 billion in economic activity. So for us here in Hamilton, a steel city, uh, you know, it's still an important uh, uh, opportunity for us to continue to provide product that could very well be part of an eastern or western pipeline. But, uh, no, we can't seem to think further than our noses, and unfortunately those who denigrate fossil fuels do so by uh, completely ignoring the facts as to how they're living, the standard living they enjoy today. Well, and there's a lot of misrepresentation that goes on in some of the discussion, which I find very frustrating, uh, you know, because they'll talk about the, the you know, the impact on environment. And, and that's not to be dismissed. I understand that. But, I mean, uh, there are standards that need to be met before you can even put a shovel in the ground for these things. And, and, and that has to be part of the discussion. I mean, even the one they're talking about now, the Trans Mountain, Dan, as, as you know, but maybe our listeners aren't aware, 
there's already an existing line. I mean, what they're talking about doing is increasing capacity, basically, for what they need to do here. Uh, it's not as if they're inventing the wheel here. Yet people are still looking at this and saying, "Well, we can't just we can't do that." They've already done it. Yeah, it's, it's already happened. It's disinformation by the BC NDP and, of course, uh, its Green Coalition, uh, and that's because they have an interest in, uh, in in shutting down fossil fuels. You know, one of the things I've often found interesting is one of the big groups that's involved with shutting down oil is uh, is the Rockefeller Fund. The Rockefellers uh, have been really ticked as a as an organization since, uh, oh, about the 1890s when the U.S. government broke up their monopoly and their trust. So if they can't get it one way, it looks like they're working another. But more specific to the West Coast, you've got the city of Victoria basically flushing its toilet into the uh, the very area that these people now want to say should ought to be protected. It seems to me to be hypocritical, to say the least, when you do that kind of uh, antics or behavior. And all other vessels, all 23,000 that pass through that region, uh, don't uh, don't get anywhere near the scrutiny that uh, this uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline and vessels going in will require, which will be state-of-the-art uh, without incident, and more importantly, uh, provide the, uh, the, the uh, economic wherewithal to be able to afford defending the coast. So it's, uh, yeah, it's disingenuous. And by the way, I, Bill, you and I have done interviews for 20 years or so. You know full well my credentials, oil mm-hmm. and, and Dan McTague do not get along well together. So I'm not talking about uh, you know, the oil industry's interests here. I couldn't really care what happens to them. What I do care about is Canadian resources that are being completely and utterly reduced in terms of their value, hurting Canadians, hurting our social programs, and basically vandalizing this country. That's not acceptable for this generation or the next. Which is why this has to be part of the discussion. I know some people say, I thought you were going to talk about the price of gas. Uh, and, and this tr- pipeline, well, that's something that's happening way over there. That's up in the northwest part of the country. But it, but as you've mentioned, and it's on your webpage, we'll get to that in a couple of seconds, it, it's having an impact here in Ontario. It's going gonna, it's gonna to impact you and me this summer. Well, there's no doubt. It's already starting to impact you. And as I mentioned earlier, I can basically tell you that today you'd be paying 14 cents a litre less if you had oil selling for international prices, which are about $68 a barrel. Instead, we're giving it away because we have decided in this country that, uh, unlike any other country, we want to dump on our number one, uh, you know, responsibly extracted, responsibly delivered product that the world wants. Oh, by the way, when you hear of uh, protesters from California and Hollywood coming down, uh, remind them that the dirtiest oil in the world is actually produced in California. It's one of the reasons many of the heavy oil producers, the big, big refineries in California, are one of the first clients that we have for the expanded Trans Mountain Pipeline. They want Canadian heavy oil. They're running out in Alaska. Uh, they realize that uh, Canadian heavy oil is, uh, if you've done uh, the investments, as most refineries in the U.S. Midwest and Gulf Coast have done, the heavy oil is actually much cleaner to produce, and you can produce a lot more with it for far less. So, you know, I think uh, it's time that Canadians realize Stop dumping on your own products because the rest of the world wants them. And I think they're scratching their head in amazement saying, you're giving us your, your, your best products at half price. You must be out of your minds uh, because you're being, uh, you're, you're being essentially manipulated by the green agenda in Canada, which, by the way, d- does a lot of its work out of places like Holland and uh, California and the like. So uh, they've seen Canada as a soft target. Uh, when governments are racking up massive debts and your kids can't find work, uh, you'll actually know why. There's a direct correlation between those who have uh, targeted Canada, and for for all of us, ignorance uh, has a price. Yeah, well, we do the same thing with our hydro too. You know, we 
tossed us an arm and a leg to make the stuff, and we sample it for pennies on the dollar, and it's awfully frustrating. Uh, I'm one of these people, by the way, that it's, I, I feel fortunate that we lived right beside the United States of America. I love the country. I'm not crazy about their president, obviously, but but one of the downsides, I guess, of, of doing that, Dan, is, is because of the consumption rates that they have there, it's going to have an impact on our prices, and that's certainly the same with gasoline. I mean, they're, they're, they're car crazy down there, of course, and uh, and they're using up a lot of the stuff that we should be getting up here. They are. Americans are, in fact, uh, going through fuel like never before, and, of course, what little is left. Uh, they're exporting to Latin American countries who are uh, themselves seeing an increase in demand and a higher standard of living. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, this is not what we thought it would be, that the world would somehow, A, run out of oil, which it hasn't, uh, B, that uh, somehow the world would start to use less and less fuel. We're far away from that. And, uh, uh, you know, there has to be greater emphasis on how we keep our fuel clean, and we're doing that here in Canada, but we shouldn't be punishing ourselves at the time when other nations seem to have no difficulty and this is what, of course, worries me. You have a jurisdiction south of the border that doesn't want to impose taxes or emissions on revenue generators and its uh, its energy industry. We could see serious, uh, what's referred to as carbon leakage. In other words, companies leaving from here to go to there, not just because it's cheaper, but more importantly, if you're a refiner, uh, you don't have the kind of conditions and uh, uh, you know uh, targets and goals that might work very well in France, but they sure as don't work here in Canada, an energy-intensive country, a country that needs its fossil fuels, the bulk of fossil fuels, in order to move ahead. We want to have a perfect, clean world, but we can't punish ourselves in the process of doing it. And I think that's the advantage the Americans have if they quickly recognize, if Canada wants to move ahead and shut down refineries, so be it. We're only too happy to sell it to you, but at massive premiums. And I'll give an example. 18 cents a litre premium today, because Vancouver doesn't have enough uh, uh, refineries and enough petroleum to get product uh, into uh, its its greater uh, uh, region, uh, demand and consumption is very high there. Uh, Americans are selling it back to us with an 18 cent a liter premium more than they're charging themselves. So that's what we're looking at here in Canada. You want to be drawers of water and hewers of wood, keep going down this uh, green Pied Piper path. It's all about cause and effect. Uh, go to gasbuddy.com if you want to get some more details about this. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend, Bill. You too. Take care. Dan McTaggart, of course, uh, from GasBuddy.com, former uh, consumer affairs critic for a long time. The guy knows his stuff. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.